Today's reading is from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 36. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and, she, and he died childless. The second and then the third married her and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Grace Long Beach. It's always awesome as a preacher when you get a really clear and easy passage. I'm sure you guys heard the reading, you know what it means. So we'll just invite the band back up. We can go home early today. Uh, let's pray before we jump into this one. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you spoke so long ago to um, real people in real places about real things and real questions that they had trying to make sense of your good creation, trying to make sense of how sin has distorted everything in your good creation, trying to make sense of how you have called us to live. Lord, you, you not only spoke, but you are still speaking. And so Jesus, please continue to speak to us today. We are thankful for the presence of your spirit we are thankful that you know the story of everyone you have called here today and why you have called them here today and how this world, this word will apply to them today. And so Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you. We thank you that you love us, that you are present with us, that you call us friends. We give this time to you, help us to be mindful. We pray these things in your name, amen, amen. So. We started a little over a year ago in the book of Luke. We heard the story about how uh, Luke wrote this to a person named Theophilus, about all of these things that happened before Jesus was even born. We heard about how uh, the angels appeared to Mary and told her that she would have a baby, uh, how Zechariah was in the temple and the angel told him that his wife, even in her advanced age, would conceive. And for those of us who have had Surprise babies in our advanced age. We're so thankful for this passage. <laughs> we heard about the birth of Jesus, how angels appeared to shepherds who were out in their fields. Um, we heard about how uh, Jesus stuck around the temple uh, to talk with the leaders of the law. We've heard about Jesus's baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, kicking off his ministry in the synagogue, reading from the book of Isaiah saying, today, good news for the poor is, is happening, not just being talked about. Sight for the blind is happening, not just being talked about. Freedom for the oppressed is happening, not just being talked about. 
There's good news, not just for God's people, but for the Gentiles. And then Jesus went uh, for chapter after chapter after chapter of not only talking about these things, but doing these things, right? He didn't just talk about sight for the blind. He actually healed blind people. He didn't just talk about liberty from oppression. He, he actually cast out demons and confronted the powers and did all of these things that um, won the people over and caused quite a stir amongst those who were in power, the religiously powerful, the politically powerful, the socially powerful. Jesus is kind of flipping everything upside down, up on its head. And after talking and, and doing what the kingdom was like, then he goes on this long, long journey to Jerusalem. And that was from about the middle of chapter nine until just a few weeks ago. And on this long journey to Jerusalem, he talks about what it actually means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. All the while, we're reminded as readers of the book of Luke that he's heading to Jerusalem. And spoiler alert, in case you didn't know this already, what happens in Jerusalem is eventually Jesus going to the cross, Jesus being killed, and Jesus rising again. And so a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a war horse. Um, we see him weeping over Jerusalem because he knows how many will not follow him, yet his heart is still for them. We see Jesus entering into the temple and, and cleansing the temple. Some other gospel writers talk about Jesus flipping over tables and driving people out and, and, and all of this crazy stuff. And then Daniel last week talked about how these religious leaders are questioning Jesus. They're asking Jesus these different questions, trying to trap him. And, and this isn't new. This has happened throughout the book of Luke. Jesus has asked questions in attempts to trap him in his words, in his understanding of the law, in how that law should be applied in that day. Questions like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? So we see this happen again in the text that we'll be engaging, but this is the last time in the book of Luke that the religious leaders will try to trap Jesus with questions. And I have to say, I loved Daniel's sermon last week when he talked about not reading ourselves into Jesus, but into the religious leaders. But the temptation, guys, especially as like a parent of kids who try to trap me with their questions all the time. Any parents relate to this? Yeah, especially like around bedtime, right? Like around bedtime when they become like theologians and scholars and like, dad, if, if sin is real, then perhaps would you consider with me? Like, no, 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 it's bedtime, it's bedtime. But what if, <clears throat> sorry boys. So we're gonna look at these uh, questions that the religious leaders try to trap Jesus with. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up with me. We're gonna be in the book of Luke, starting in chapter 20, picking up in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there is one under the chair waiting for you. Uh, that'll be on page 880, if that's the Bible you're reading from. Luke chapter 20, picking up in verse 27. <clears throat> this is what Luke says. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Let's pause there. Who are the Sadducees? So the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders 
they were very wealthy and politically connected with Rome. We know from scripture, specifically this one, they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, one of the tricky things historically is we don't really have records of their writings that tell us what they believe. Where a lot of the information about the Sadducees comes from is from their enemies like the Pharisees and the scribes and other people, what they were writing against the Sadducees. So what we know about them, like if you're in their shoes, would you want your enemies to describe how people view you, right? We need to be like a little, a little cautious here. This is what we do know. They don't believe in the resurrection. They were very well connected politically and they were very, very wealthy. They were not a large group. So that's who these guys are, the Sadducees. They say there's no resurrection. When you die, that's it. What most people believe is because they put an emphasis on the first five books of the Bible and not the rest of the scriptures that most Jewish people at this time would, would be reading from. And so from those other scriptures, there's more passages that would support life after death or a resurrection. So they had a very specific understanding of scripture, which also informed how they behaved. Some of the things that were written about them would say, because they were so wealthy and so connected politically, when other groups would say, how can you be aligned with Rome? Look what they're doing to our people. They'd say, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. Consider the Torah. And they would say, but no, 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 think about the prophets. Think about all the passages on justice. They would say, yeah, we don't really pay attention to those. How we understand scripture affects our daily lives. Probably something there, but we'll keep going. <clears throat> they come to Jesus with a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us in the first five books of the Bible, specifically in Deuteronomy, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there's some debate about this. Some people would say this is so that the widow would be cared for. Other people would say, no, 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 this is so that the man's name would be carried on. So the question is, who is being cared for here? The dead man in the family name or the woman who is now a widow with no children, no one to care for her. The practice was that someone from the family, specifically a brother, would come and invite her, the widow, into his family and help to procreate so that there could be a family line, somebody eventually to help care for the widow, those kinds of things. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her and in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now here's a clue. Right, like they've proven their point after like the first brother and the second brother. Now maybe the third brother, but then the fourth brother and the fifth brother, right? Like this is getting absurd. This is like one of those gotcha moments, right? Like you see like interviews usually with politicians where they ask the candidate like a question. It's like, oh, we know we got you now, right? You can sense that in the text from the Sadducees. They are convinced from their understanding of scripture that they got Jesus. If the resurrection is real, then who is this lady married to? 
How is this going to work? There's been seven husbands, and all of them have left her childless. In the resurrection, who will she be married to? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, the age of the resurrection, and in the resurrection from the dead, will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are the children of the resurrection. So Jesus is is comparing and contrasting. There are children of this age, sons of this age, people who are not part of the resurrection or part of the coming kingdom. And there's another category of people who are children of the resurrection, who are children of that age. There is a distinction between the two groups. What he says is the children of this age, not the age to come, get married and are given in marriage. The children of the age to come or the resurrection, they don't get married, they are not given in marriage. If you're married today, this should feel slightly problematic to us. What is Jesus talking about? He sets up this distinction. Those who are worthy are not given in marriage, nor do they get married. Guilty. What I think is happening here is Jesus is describing that things are different in the kingdom than they are here on earth. Okay, so follow me here. What we see in scripture is there's a few reasons that marriage is created, that this institution is formed. One is for the very basic form of procreation. People are gonna die, they need to have babies so that they can grow up and have more babies so that the human race can continue. In the kingdom, there is no death. In the kingdom, in the coming kingdom, there is no more death. So the need for procreation is no longer present. Now, here's another thing that marriage does. Present. Now, here's another thing that marriage does in this age. Marriage is a picture of what the relationship between God and his people is like. God is faithful, so for those of us who are married, we are called to be faithful to our spouse. God is kind and loving, so we are called to be kind and loving to our spouse. We are called to be a protector. We're called to be a provider. All of these things that display to the world what God is like. In the kingdom, Revelation tells us God will be present with us. We don't need a symbol of what he's like when he's right there. We know when you're away from your family, you have the pictures so you can remember, right? So you can see them. Oh, that's what they're... When they're there, you don't just stare at the pictures. You interact with your family. Does this make sense? So a few things here. <clears throat> what we see about the kingdom is that the presence of God reorients our relationships, Without the presence of sin in the coming kingdom, our relationships, even with our spouse, uh, most people would say we would still have those memories, but there is something about being in the presence of God 
that takes precedence. There's something about being face-to-face with the creator of all, with the God of the universe, that takes precedence. Does that mean your marriage is unimportant? No. Your marriage is still important if you are married. Does that mean, for those of you who are single, that you're like missing out on this big, huge, no. It's one way we reflect what God is like. Now, I haven't been here that long, but I know that in certain uh, pockets of the evangelical church, nationally, marriage and the nuclear family has been built up as the end all be all, this is the thing, and if you're not part of that, man, you're really missing out. And I don't know that like if there are pastors that would go so far as to say that like if you're not married and you don't have kids, you're like kind of less than like almost second class citizens in the church. That may not be explicitly communicated, but I have known enough single people to know that that's felt very often. Okay. In no way am I saying marriage is unimportant. In no way am I saying people who are single, you're wrong if you desire to get married. But I do think that we should take seriously what Paul says And he says it's actually better to be single. Sometimes around church, we act like that's just like a consolation prize. Like, oh, don't worry, Paul says it's better to be single. But if scripture is God-breathed and authoritative, maybe he actually meant that. If you know single people in our congregation, you're a married person with a family, maybe invite them in. (laughs) Maybe ask them what that experience has been like. Maybe hear from them what would be helpful. Super easy passage, stick with me. Jesus goes on, verse 37. But in the account of the bush, he's talking about the burning bush, so this is back in Exodus again, in the first five books of the Bible that the Sadducees would be familiar with, that they study from, that they prioritize. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. Oh, intriguing if you're saying this to Sadducees. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Who were they? They were some of the founders of the faith. When, Moses, when God speaks to Moses in the scene that Jesus is referring to around a burning bush, he says that God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Those guys are dead at this point. They're long gone. What God doesn't say is, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see how that language matters. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. So Jesus is saying, look, use some context clues here. Like, understand how language works. God is not the God of the dead. If they were dead and and vanished and there was nothing else, How could he still be their God? He's challenging the Sadducees in their understanding of scriptures and by extension, their worldview. Now, they're not alone. It's not like Jesus is just one-on-one with the Sadducees. They're at the temple still, so there are crowds. The disciples are there, other people are there. Verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, these teachers of the law disagree with the Sadducees. They believe that there is a resurrection. 
So they're like, yeah, Jesus got him roasted, right? Isn't that what the kids say? Right, Jesus, this is like the mic drop moment. And they're so excited because Jesus proved their point. Jesus must be on their side. Well, Jesus goes on. Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ or the Messiah or this promised one who would make everything right that sin has distorted in God's good creation, this one that the prophecies point to, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, he's gonna refer here to Psalm 110, which Bible trivia folks, this is the most quoted uh, chapter of the Old Testament that's quoted in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Now, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was a patriarchal culture. That's not a derogative, that's a description. How it was established was that the father would always have more honor than the son. Now, David isn't just a dad talking to his son. David is a king. The scriptures say that David is a king after God's own heart. So David is like the ultimate king. He wrote most of the Psalms. He uh, brought Israel military victories and incredible wealth. And David in Psalm 110 says, the Lord Yahweh, which is the name of God revealed to Moses at this earlier scene with the burning bush, Yahweh said to my Lord, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai, which the Jewish people would not speak the name Yahweh out loud. It was too holy to be spoken. So they would refer to Yahweh as Adonai. So the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can he call this Adonai his son? David would have greater honor, but no one has greater honor than Yahweh or Adonai. This is confusing, especially for people who believe in a monotheistic or one God religion. This sounds like there's two gods. Yahweh is talking to Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord. So just when these teachers of the law are like, oh yeah, Jesus got the Sadducees, he asked them a question and realized Jesus has got them as well. What does this mean? This means that somehow, although it is true that God is one, the promised one, the Messiah, who would come from David's line and be born in Bethlehem and all these other prophecies that we've seen fulfilled in Jesus throughout the book of Luke would also be divine. But there's one God. This is one of the hints of the Trinity in scripture, that God is one and that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, in a few short words, is getting into some really, really complex stuff that's wildly easy for us to understand in Long Beach in 2024. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? And then the passage moves on and Jake will pick up next week. What do we do with passages like this? Now, here's a few, a, a few options. Um, if you have a lot of time, 
or you get paid to do this. You can read a lot. You can listen to different voices. You can study the Greek and Hebrew and try to figure out what's going on. And that is a good option. There is a place for that. Not all of us are able to do that in this season of life. For me, when I'm not prepping a sermon, one of the things I like to do is think about when there's a passage that's tricky, what do I know? What, what can I find that's certain in this? Where's the truth? Like, do I fully understand what it means that like, we're gonna be like the angels? Well, I think that means we're not gonna die. That feels pretty certain from scripture. But beyond that, like, do we sprout wings and get halos and like float around? Like, I, I don't know that. I don't think that's accurate. So what do we know? That's the question that I started thinking about about this passage as I'm preparing for this sermon. I got three things for us, three things. Um, number one, the word of God is really important so we should read the Bible. Think about what is happening in this passage. These people who are devoting their lives to reading the Bible and understanding it because it matters, it, it, it informs how they live, still have questions about it. I saw, hopefully this doesn't offend anyone, I think he's funny, uh, but the, the comedian Trevor Noah, who's from South Africa, he in an interview talks about how his mom is a Bible scholar. And he says, the fascinating thing to me is since before I was alive, my mom has read the Bible every single day. Not the whole thing in one day, but she has read portions of the Bible every single day. She studies this book every single day. She's gone to school to learn how to understand this book every single day. And you know what she does every morning? She texts me something new she found out about the Bible. And he goes, you can see this, look, he's like, it's the same book. The same book that she has, it's not like there's a new version coming out, right? Like, it's not like, I don't know if they like make another Harry Potter or something. Like the book is done, she reads it every day and it still communicates something to her something meaningful, something helpful, something challenging, something encouraging. It speaks to where she is. And one of the things that he notices is like, sometimes it's the same passage. But when she was younger, it spoke to her in a certain way. As she gets older and encounters different situations in life, it speaks to her in different ways. It's almost like it's living and active. If you're familiar with the Bible, that's a quote from the Bible. So here's the challenge for us. I think sometimes we know things about the Bible. We can probably look back on different seasons where we spent a lot of time reading the Bible, but is that still the case? Do we spend more time watching like videos on social media of other people talking about what they think about the Bible than actually reading the Bible? Do we spend more time reading books about what somebody else has to say about what they think about what the Bible says or reading the Bible? Now, are videos or books bad? No, I do that a lot. It's incredibly helpful. But I can't just rely on other people. I'm so thankful that God wants to speak to other people, but you know what else? God wants to speak to me. And one of the primary ways he does that is through his word. Now. We can look at people who read the Bible every day and you have questions about their life and their hypocrisy and all of these things. That's true. And just because you know someone who doesn't live every single thing that the Bible says doesn't get you off the hook for not reading the Bible. Here's the reality. I love my wife. You probably wouldn't believe me if I said I love my wife, but you know what? I never really read her text messages to me. 
that relationship probably wouldn't function very well. My wife's texting me every day. She has stuff she wants to communicate. She wants to say questions she wants me to reflect on and respond to. And I'm like, nah, I love her. She knows I love her. I don't really need to read those things, right? Maybe we should read the Bible a little bit more. Second thing, the kingdom is coming. Amen. Yes. The kingdom is coming. Think about this. All the things Jesus said would happen have happened or are happening. Gonna go to Jerusalem and die. The disciples are like, what are you talking about? Guess what he does? Goes to Jerusalem and dies. On the third day, I'll be raised. Third day? Raised. The kingdom is coming. And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's almost like we can hear Jesus like, no, actually the kingdom is coming. There will be a day when we wake up and that's the last day that it's like this. It won't always be like this. And that should matter. That should matter not just how we think about marriage. That should matter how we think about how we spend our money, our time, our resources, what we devote ourselves to, what we spend time cultivating, the things that we remove from our lives because the kingdom is coming. Here's the deal. You guys know this about me if you've been here more than right now. Um, I love the San Francisco 49ers. This, yes, the Super Bowl is coming. It matters for me. We got home yesterday and there was an Amazon package on my doorstep from my mom with the NFC championship shirt for the 49ers. It influ the Super Bowl is coming, it matters. It influenced how my mom behaves. It caused her to go on Amazon, say what you will about Amazon, and ship me a t-shirt because the 49ers are going to the Super Bowl. This is a silly illustration, but we know this. We, I started making plans. Where are we gonna watch the game? Who are we gonna watch the game with? Have we warned them that I am going to be insane during that four hour stretch? Because the Super Bowl is coming and the Super Bowl is nothing compared to the kingdom. It's silly, now it matters, hear me, I'm very excited. But compared to the kingdom, come on. But how often do we go through our days? It's another day. Got to get the kids ready. We got to get them to school. We got to do the thing. You go to work. We got practice. Get the kids to practice. What are we doing for dinner? I don't know. Did you figure it out? No, I didn't even figure it out. Did you? And I don't even have enough bandwidth to think about the kingdom. The kingdom is coming, and that should matter. That should inform how we do things. Jesus is coming back. The brokenness that we feel every day won't always feel like this. The news stories that we scroll through on our phone. They will be a thing of the past, relics. Remember when people were like upset about politics, right? Like I imagine us having these conversations one day. Remember when those things like really felt important? Man, now we're in the presence of God. Maybe that can help us right size our conversations and our disagreements and disappointments. God forbid, even if the 49ers lose the Super Bowl. Read your Bible, kingdom is coming. Here's the reality, Jesus is Lord. David said it well before Jesus was born. Jesus has proven it throughout this book. Hopefully, prayerfully, he has proven it to you in your life. Hopefully at some point there was a day that Jesus did something where you knew in your gut you could not deny who he is. Now here's the behind the scenes as the preacher. My insecurity starts to come up at this point because here's the reality. I have used this point in like 12 sermons 
over the last six months. And so I'm like, man, this is like, not, you know, kind of like old material. Like, why, why do I keep saying Jesus is Lord? And thankfully, I was insecure and I decided to pray about it rather than just sit in it um, for once. And, and as, as I was praying, I was reminded of what Luke says at the beginning of the book. He says, I thought it was good to create this orderly account, talk to the eyewitnesses about the things that had happened, dear Theophilus, so that you would know with certainty the things you have been taught. You know what Theophilus was taught? Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not anyone else, not anything else. Jesus is Lord. And isn't it true, church, that there are just some messages you need to hear more than once, right? Like Isaiah, my youngest son was born at the hospital. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love you. I would be a horrible dad if I was like, well, I told him. I told him that one time, he gets it, right? Like the day he was born, I love you. No, say that to the boys multiple times every single day. I love you because I love you. There's nothing you can do to make me love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make me love you any less. And we forget it and so we say it again. I love you, I love you, I love you. And there's those times when we're frustrated and hopefully they still know that I love them, but maybe they don't feel like I love them. So I know that I need to say it again and again and again. I love you because I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Now, for us, God says that throughout Scripture, Old Testament, he loves you. He loves me. He loves us collectively as a community. And he's Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the reigning king. Jesus is the righteous judge. Jesus is God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is Lord who made himself vulnerable, who submitted to death, even death on a cross for us. Jesus is Lord when you get that email that you never expected, when you get the diagnosis you never expected, when you get the great news that you never expected, Jesus is Lord. When you had that conversation this week that flipped everything on its head and your first flinch was frustration and anger or maybe even rage, Jesus is still Lord. In those moments, those dark moments that you have not yet spoken to one person in those last few days, when you did the thing that you thought you would never do, Jesus is Lord. He sees and he knows and he's Lord and he loves you. And he offers you forgiveness should you choose to receive it. Jesus is Lord. In the next, whatever it is, six or nine months, next November, when there's like a little thing that's gonna happen, an election, guess who's gonna be Lord? Jesus. From today until that day, as you scroll through your social media feeds, guess who's Lord? Not the uncle who posts the crazy things. Don't be that uncle also, by the way. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord when your kids get under your skin. Jesus is Lord when you're so proud of them you can't stand it. Jesus is Lord. If you keep coming back to this church, you're gonna keep hearing this because we believe it's important. 
Jesus is Lord. This is what we orient our lives around. This is the hope we have for this future coming kingdom. This is what we will celebrate at the table, that we even get invited to the table, that the Lord of all things who spoke creation into existence is mindful of us, cares for us, has numbered the hairs on our head, or lack thereof. My bald friends are like, eh. Jesus is Lord. And God help us if we ever get tired of saying that or hearing that. Jesus is Lord who calls me friend. Jesus is Lord who still speaks to me, even me, even you. Jesus is Lord who still extends kindness and grace and hope and mercy and invites us to the table. And so church, we get to respond to the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not just a distant king, but Jesus is a savior who drew near, who invites us to dine with us. And and so we're gonna transition our service into the the, the table, the bread and cup. We understand that not only is Jesus this Messiah who made certain passages like Psalm 110 incredibly (laughs) problematic, he is the God who still reveals himself to us through incredible acts of love and sacrifice. Jesus is Lord who laid down his life. He gave his disciples a clue. He said, uh, just as this bread is broken, my body will be given for you. I wonder throughout Holy Week, how many times uh, throughout those last hours that echoed in their ears as they heard about Jesus being beaten, being put on trial, being crucified as they heard about the the spear going into his side, did they hear that, my body given for you? As they heard about the nails, the blood, did they think of when he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant? It's not an old covenant which depends upon law, it's a new covenant which depends upon the loving sacrifice of Jesus who is Lord, who lays down his life so that we can be adopted into God's family, so we have a seat at the table, so that we, so many years later, in a separate continent, get to enjoy this meal together as family. And so this time, the ushers will come forward. They'll dismiss you by rows to come up and and take the elements. Um, The wine is in the open cups. The juice is in the sealed cups. And so as you're dismissed, we invite you to um, come and collect the elements and then we'll be led to, to partake of this meal together as a family. So let me pray for us before that happens. Father, thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for speaking to us. God, it strikes me that um, in a passage that made so much sense to them then, you would still speak to us through that today. Thank you that you speak to us as we are, where we are, how we are. You're God who uses language that's familiar, who reson- language that resonates deep within us. And so as you are speaking, help us to listen clearly. As you're inviting us to yourself, Jesus, give us the courage to respond. Thank you that you are Lord, you are King, and you are Savior. You are good, good Father, who is dependable and trustworthy. 
who will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus, we cannot wait for your kingdom to come when we can dwell in your presence, when your radiance will fill the city, when there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, when we will be in your presence and all will be as you intended. We thank you for the glimpses of that that you give us here on earth. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.